Hello, and thanks for doing something that five years ago would have been unusual and ten years ago would have been unthinkable, listening to a podcast. It's astounding not only what the future keeps throwing at us, but also how quickly we adapt and behave as if things had always been that way. So how does that speed of advance and adaptation apply to something as planet-transforming and yet, on a daily basis, intangible as climate change? For the last of these four discussions on different aspects of cultural responses to our changing climate, our focus is on the future, our limited abilities to alter the shape of things to come and the almost limitless ability of those things to come to shape us. Much talk about climate change is underpinned by projections and predictions of where we could and should be headed. Climate scientists have outlined a range of scenarios, from the odd degree rise and a change in a date the blossom comes out, to rising seas, floods, droughts, wars over resources and species extinctions, including, some would argue, our own. While many people understandably prefer the early blossom version of the future, non-governmental organisations and many others tend to focus on the more frightening end of the spectrum. The only thing it seems almost everyone can agree on is that, to slightly misquote Sam Cooke, an environmental change is going to come. So, are we ready to make changes of our own to make sure us, the planet and this future can all get along? There's already been plenty of big thinking and grand planning, including from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, but these are largely strategies and agreements drawn up by science and policy specialists who pay limited attention to how society will interpret, implement and redraft their ideas. For today, our emphasis is on the mediators of this science and policy, the artists, storytellers, politicians and journalists, and how they've responded and what influence they've had and may yet have on the public's ideas of the future. With me at the National Theatre Studio in London are BBC Environment Analyst Roger Harriman, who's been reporting on climate change since before most people put those two words together, Mike Hume, Professor of Climate Change at the University of East Anglia and author of Why We Disagree About Climate Change, Ruth Little, writer, dramaturge and Associate Director at the Climate Change Arts Science Education Body Cape Farewell, Oliver Morton, Energy and Environment Editor for The Economist and author of Eating the Sun, How Plants Power the Planet. And lastly, Carolyn Steele, architect and author of Hungry City. Um, Just a quick one to start with for everyone. This this whole series of discussions has been on on different aspects of of cultural responses to climate change. But in in what sense is, is climate science and policy itself also cultural? And, Mike, I'm going to start with you, given that you've been involved with climate change throughout your professional life and probably had to deal with a lot of mediation and politicians. Well, it undoubtedly is cultural. I mean, climate science has oriented itself towards the future. It is making claims of greater or lesser veracity about how the future might unfold. And because the future, almost by definition, is a contested place... It's a contested concept. First of all, it's going to become political, and, and as we very well know, climate change has become deeply political, but also because the future is a place that we all live in in our imaginations. It also becomes cultural in the sense that every single person on the planet has got a stake in the future, and the way we think about the future, the way the future impacts back on us, how we connect to the future, our hopes, aspirations and fears. Climate change cannot escape from being both political and being cultural. Whatever the scientists may think they're doing, they actually are invading that very contested place. Oliver Morton, is it a cultural invasion of the future? Oh, yes, and I think it's uh, 
there's a feedback in which the cultural dimension takes off in its importance. And it seems to me that at the moment the single most shared yet contested narrative about the future is indeed a narrative about climatic change because it seems to be a naturalised narrative about stuff that's happening, as it were, almost independent of choice. And yet at the same time, choice is a very important part of the politics that feed into it. I was in a climate change meeting a couple of months ago and I suddenly realised that maps of the world with different places coloured in different levels of red are currently the single most dominant graphic representation of the end of this century that we have. We don't have lovely illustrations of skyscrapers and zeppelins anymore. What we have is maps of the world objectified and coloured different ways of red. That's you know, a very important part of how we now see the future. And of course we used to have maps in different shades of red to indicate the size of the empire. Indeed. So it's a different, different Somewhat more backward look. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree with everything that's being said. I think science, like art, is a way of knowing, and, and all ways of knowing are culturally mediated. And I think I like the definition of culture that the anthropologist Clifford Geertz gave some years ago, which is that man is an animal suspended in webs of significance which he himself has spun. And I think that science and the way of knowing that science provides is as much culturally influenced and influencing as art itself, though communicated very differently, which is, of course, one of the big issues that we're now confronting in relation to climate change. So culture is a kind of patterned practice, and we're all participants in it. Scientists, too, are members of society and have the same roles and responsibilities that the rest of us have in, in both engaging in and communicating potential futures for us. Karen Steele, those, those webs, of course, include society, they include our cities, but are we, are we navigating those webs or are we getting stuck in those webs? Well, I, I think this is very interesting because I also agree with the, what the first three panellists have said. We can only see what we can see. And there's a whole branch of philosophy that deals with this problem. But, um, you know, essentially, I think what's interesting about climate change is that, you know, this inconvenient truth is actually forcing us to rethink structures that have been quite comfortable and serving us quite well for roughly the last two and a half centuries. We've inherited a sort of series of structures, call it the Enlightenment, that has neatly split up the world and its problems into disciplines that can be sort of approached, you know, with great professionalism, etc. And actually what we're facing now is, to many people, extremely scary. It's a level of complexity and engagement that requires that we rethink the very structures of society. And that's interesting. Roger Harabin, climate change is now, most of us, a very familiar story, but you're one of the people who has helped make that familiar and also probably watched as that story has evolved over, what, 20 years of reporting on it. Hmm. I think the key element here has been fear because there have been many grand narratives that have interested the media and through the media and NGOs through to the general public and... uh, and politicians. So, you know, before global warming came global cooling, came overpopulation, came fears of resource shortage. And all these touch on people's imagination of their future and their children's future. And I think it's really natural that people would be concerned about these huge uh, challenges facing the planet. It's been interesting to me to see how climate change has evolved because, unlike some of the other scares, it has gained traction rather than lost it over the years. Climate change, of course, has been underpinned by this great mass of, uh, of climate science, although now, of course, we, we're starting to see a loss of confidence in some of that science because of the business about climate gate, because of the mistake on the IPCC. The other player in the cultural sphere in this is business. 
Oliver and I were at the CBI Climate Change Summit, and one of the CBI business leaders, a CEO, said to me afterwards, oh, we don't care what these sceptics are saying. As far as we're concerned, this is a serious problem, and we'll keep driving it forward. So you have these different actors in society driving narratives forward at different paces, overlapping and feeding back into each other. When you're trying to get climate stories into the media, have you noticed a difficulty of climate fatigue? I mean, I certainly know from friends in the print media sometimes, they'll just go, that story would have run three years ago, I can't run it now. Yes. There is definite climate fatigue, and over the past 20 years I've monitored climate and the environment generally go up and down the news agenda in a sort of roller coaster. And that's why I'm so uncertain about where it goes now. Now, I've just been doing a documentary in which we interviewed Michael Jacobs, who was um, Gordon Brown's advisor in uh, the Copenhagen Climate Summit. And he says, oh, well, governments will really take climate change seriously, you know, when climate change impacts upon them in a serious way. Now, now, when is that going to be? You know, are we going to remain in a solar minimum? Are we going to go into a period of temporal recalling? What is going to happen with the level of warming of the planet? I've no idea. But certainly, by the time it impacts enough on nations for them to really get worried about it, then if the scientific account is correct, then it is far, far too late. So his statement is not at all reassuring. No, it's not reassuring in the sense that he's thinking it hasn't impacted yet. Oliver Morton, what's the pattern been at The Economist? I think we need to look at that rather special subset of fear that we, that we talk of as the sublime. This idea that there's something frightening and yet there's something comforting about looking at the frightful thing because it's not actually proximate to you, that you're, you're saved by three floors of building above the flood or whatever, or whatever, however you want to, to, to see it. And there is something in what well, something Mike's uh, written about a bit uh, as well in... Uh, what's sometimes called climate porn, covers of newspapers saying catastrophe, six degrees warming and all that. There's a sense in which I think that fear is actually particularly counterproductive because it's a way in which people externalise all sorts of other disaffections that they have with modernity to say, oh, look at this terrible thing we're all doing and to transfer it out into an area which they can condemn and worry about and have that freedom of fear, but not actually re-import into questions of, well, does this actually affect the way I live my life? But is this part of an essential thing if you're talking about climate and climate futures? You have to keep stepping beyond the facts. The facts will tell you where you are now, but then you get into the possibilities that they bring up for the future. I think that's true, but I, and I think one of the things that's, that's an important part of the debate, culturally and otherwise, is to extend that discussion of possibilities. Because we're still at a point in which many of the discussions of climate change, certainly the politics of climate change and uh, activism around the issue of climate change, is about stopping it, rather than about saying that you know, there is really no realistic way that the limits that have been talked about since the 1990s and by the EU and then increasingly by the rest of the world of limiting climate change to two degrees, pretty much no one, in fact I think I could go as far as say, no one who's actually, as it were, in the business actually believes that this is a valid objective and yet it is still seen, I mean most famously at Copenhagen, but still seen as the campaigning point that we have, that climate change is a future to avoid rather than a context for all the futures, good or ill, that we might go on to inhabit. Mike Hume, is this also a problem for scientists? They're used to sort of saying, here's, here's what we know, but when you're dealing with climate change, you have to then go into, here's what we think. Well, it is a problem for scientists, because it's, it, it, as soon as you start talking about the future, you, you're, you're leaving facts behind you. And climate scientists have found this a very uncomfortable and, and difficult place to be in, and it's not surprising, actually, that we've seen 
different scientists position themselves in relation to these future narratives in different ways. So we have someone like Jim Hansen, who's a, a great scientist in the United States, has been working on this for 30 years or more. He will position himself in relation to future narratives in a very different place than someone like myself, who, who's also worked for most of my career on climate change. So actually, as soon as we start talking about climate change in the future, as scientists, we do inevitably have to bring other personal commitments or cultural commitments or sets of values and ethics into play. And this has been difficult. And, of course, what it does also do for science, it exposes a vulnerability for people who wish to critique or criticise science and scientists. It actually creates that vulnerability because people can say, oh, but these guys, and they're not talking about facts anymore, they're talking about theories or predictions or projections and... But scientists are, you know, are also, and some may disagree, but scientists are also human beings. If you think <laughs> somebody's about to drive a car off a cliff, you don't say, I think if you apply your foot to the brake pedal now at, at a certain rate, you might slow us down. You might shout, you might yell, you might do whatever you need to do, going beyond the mere facts, to get someone to change their behaviour. But, but we don't know there's a cliff. And it's also foggy. <laughs> and, 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 and the brakes haven't been tested anyway. Exactly <laughs> so. And part of this, isn't it, is the way the media and science interact to obfuscate the future. If you were so minded as a journalist, you could quote Mike as saying, we don't know there's a cliff. Take that completely out of context and you've got Mike suddenly being a, a climate change sceptic. No, no, that, 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 that's obviously true. I think one of the problems with the narrative also, though, is you were talking about, and Mike was talking about going beyond the facts. There's a way in which, partly because of a framing within things like Inconvenient Truth, there's been a framing of this as being primarily an observational question. Whereas, in fact, there's a very strong framing theory underlying much of what is said. And so it, when someone says scientists can't say with certainty anything about the future, well, scientists and other people can say pretty well that next July will be warmer than next January. What you can't say is how warm it will be. But that's actually the idea that, which has been helped along by creationists. There is a lexicon out there of discussions of only a theory as though theory is essentially a second-rate and more culturally labile and weaker sort of thing than having lots of dates about when tulips come into flower. When, in fact, theory is actually extraordinarily powerful. Yeah, well, it's perceived as being a weakness of science, but it's actually one of its great strengths that all theories are transitory. They're meant to be improved and adapted and, and changed. Carolyn, is one of the things we need to do here to get away from this tendency to think about the future in utopian and dystopian mm. terms, to find other ways to get our minds into that future? Yes. Well, I mean, if you, if you look at any set of human ideas... It's always the kind of the one-liners that tend to get the most attention. It's much easier to sort of generate newspaper headlines and kind of big sort of scary stories about, you know, one-liner sort of short-thinking ideas. And what I find interesting is that we've inherited a kind of polarised way of thinking, really from the ancient Greeks, you know. I mean, everything is presented as an either-or problem. And I, I really think what's required is a completely different way of thinking about problems, presenting them, arguing them. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous that Climate Gate has kind of created a, an atmosphere in which, you know, the sort of the whole issue of climate change is put into question. The idea that scientists are expected to know anything, I mean, any, any more than the rest of us, why should they? I mean, you know, why should we have certainty about the future when we don't even have certainty about the present or the past, you know? Ruth, is, does this same polarity tend to infect or characterise a lot of artistic responses in terms of stage and film and TV drama that we, we tend to kind of want to present 
fantastic, shining, wonderful futures yeah. or deeply scary yeah. ones? Well, we're far more likely to present the deeply scary ones because yeah. they're so much more interesting. And I think that problem, as Caroline says, goes back to the dualism in our in Western philosophy and in monotheistic religion. We've got good or bad and there's not much in between. And I think that art has reflected that historically, but it has tended to err on the side of erring because that's where drama is and that's where tension is. If you have a protagonist who is evil, he's more interesting. And Milton knew that as when he wrote Paradise Lost. And nobody really is particularly interested in the character of Christ in Paradise Lost because Satan is so much more interesting and you'd much rather hang out with him in the wilderness. So I think that we've got to accept that that's a reality, that, that, that the way that we... Well, you're saying metaphorically we may all end up hanging out with Satan in the wilderness well, as a result we're, we're of climate We're already trailer. doing it now. I think. Yes, exactly, exactly. The, the, look, um, the science fiction writer William Gibson said that the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. distributed yeah. we, we don't really have to think too much about the future, we can look around us at the present and we can see this kind of dualism being played out in all of our imaginings of what, of what we might become. You know, and Emerson said, what we are, only that can we see. And I think the business of framing is, is really the kind of quintessential problem that one of the reasons we cannot get a grasp on climate and climate change, the condition of climate within which we live, is that we frame our understanding of it. And, and that's limiting, it's habitual, it's ideological, it's culturally constructed. If we're going to have conversations, artistic and imaginative conversations about the future, we've got to start by becoming conscious, self-conscious about what lens we're looking through. And that's the big problem, I think, that we don't realise, we don't see those lenses anymore. Oliver, as I think Ruth has, has beautifully indicated here, Climate change and the future of it is very simple to sum up, but it's very complicated to engage with in terms of the details. Your Eating the Sun was rightly praised for linking the, the very big and the very small, for making connections. Is that one of the roles of good science writing here, is to actually begin to give us the bigger picture and show the interconnectedness of all this? Well, I think that's in general a role for good science writing, though I'm not sure it's in any way a solution to what might be seen as a problem here. I don't think that a wider, wider audience of for better science writing is, re is really the issue. I'm though very taken or, or can help? Sorry? You don't think a wider audience for science writing can help? At the margin, but I don't think... Right. What, I, don't think what's, uh, I didn't sort of like walk around the halls of Copenhagen and think, damn, if only there was better science writers around here. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, you know, the, the, I might have enjoyed myself more in the bars, but I think we need to consider in the historical context what a very strange notion of the future we're coming away from in that you were talking about science fiction, and science fiction in the earlier part of the 20th century has very optimistic traits to it, especially in the American pulps. And I think this is to some extent because it's a, it's a literature of colonising the future, and it's a lit literature that's produced by first-generation and second-generation immigrants in New York, the pulp science fiction that shapes our imaginations. But there's another part of the future which is much more difficult, which is the future that comes with nuclear weapons. Because nuclear weapons make the future suddenly extraordinarily either-or. They, the they make the future something which can depend on something that literally happens in three minutes, the three-minute warning. So you have this idea that the future is on one side the radical preservation of the present, and we remake the military-industrial complex and we change our notions of executive power in order just to preserve the present, or unimaginably bad. And that dominates our view of the future. We get into this whole notion of utopias and catastrophes, or more to the point, just the present versus being preserved versus something horrid. And that's, I think that, that's the prehistory, that's the, that's the archaeology of some of the debate we're having now about how to forestall a future rather than how to navigate a future. Roger. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to say that, that I agree that the nuclear debate has helped frame the debate about climate change. But also there are some more fundamental things here about the way we like to tell stories, and particularly in the broadcast media and particularly in radio, we like to tell stories to take on ideas and topics through debate. And debate involves a natural and inevitable oppositionalism. And so what we appear to have constructed in climate change is a bunch of people who say, I'm really worried about the future, really worried about climate change. A small group of people who say, I don't give a damn, it's not going to happen, humans can't change the planet. And quite a lot of people in the middle who say, well, actually, I don't know. I hear these competing voices and I don't know. Now, there, there is another potential narrative that could have grown through, which is that actually there is massive consensus that humans have changed the planet already and will almost certainly change it some more. There is not a great deal of consensus about quite how future climate change will impact and what emission scenarios are tied to what temperature outcomes. And that at the extreme end, those scenarios are extremely scary. And at the narrow end, actually, they're probably quite simple to cope with. And we don't know which we're going to end up with, and that becomes more of a narrative of, of, of risk and risk avoidance and takes you into politics. But somehow we have failed to tell that really... I mean, it's not taken very long for me to tell it, but, but somehow over the years those of us in the media have failed properly to, in, to inform people, I think, about this issue because we constantly pulled into, oh, well, we've got to have somebody saying something completely different. Is there no change to that, that journalistic climate? Because there is a realisation, this is not the first time I've heard this theory, that we have this false um, extremes that are presented to the public just in order to engineer conflict. Yeah, I think there is a real problem now that following ClimateGate... I mean, ClimateGate actually, I think, was a real problem for the public consciousness. It seemed like something dodgy had gone on. Now, I've looked, I've looked very deeply into ClimateGate and I can't find any smoking gun at all. Mm. But I've also followed the inquiries into ClimateGate and, quite frankly, in my view, that they were all inadequate. And so if you were looking on from the outside, from a suspicious viewpoint, you would be continuing to say, there is a scam, you know, they're cheating us, the inquiries haven't looked into the issue properly because they haven't. And it allows this continual erosion to come of what, what you might call a middle ground Position. And I think, I mean, talking about uh, you know, the way things are represented, politicians also fall into the same trap. Chris Yoon, at this CBI meeting, talked about climate change for the first time I'd heard in terms of risk and probability and, uh, and insurance and what have you. Typically, until now, they've talked about climate change in terms of catastrophe. So we may be starting to see a different narrative. Mm. But uh, I'm not sure about it. I mean, I mean uh, across a number of different levels, I think getting away from the, the, the metaphor of polarities or linear flows and replacing it with, with the metaphor of circularity actually would help at a number of levels here because we, we know uh, in, in science there's been the linear model of, of how science should feed into policy. We know in terms of science communication we've had the linear model of how science should be deposited in the minds of our citizens. Mm. But if we displace those ways of metaphorically thinking with notions of circularity, then it actually allows different frames to emerge. You mentioned various models there. One that you didn't mention, which perhaps you ought to just briefly touch on, is the deficit model. The idea that simply if you can just get the right facts to, to people, suddenly a light bulb, probably a low energy light bulb, will light up above their head and they'll go, of course, now I see the problem, it's done. Is that 
genuinely useful or is it more important to get change without understanding than understanding without change? Well, well, I think too much communication around climate change has explicitly or implicitly followed that, that deficit model. And actually, quite a lot of scientists, climate scientists, still think in terms of the deficit model. If only uh, we can have greater clarity, more access to the public, better science writers, then we will bring these recalcitrant and unruly uh, people to book. Um, we see plenty of evidence still that climate scientists think in terms of this linear flow uh, and that we are the ones with this, this truth, that the prophets who can actually see the future, and it's these people that we have to convince. And, and that is the deeply unhelpful way in which science is brought into public and political discussion. Uh, and I think this metaphor of circularity, plurality, multiplicity, multivocality is a much more engaging one. And actually... Uh, gives us much, many more resources as, as a society or as a, as a, as a global uh, collection of societies. It gives us many more resources to work with creatively. I mean, this is the thing that I'm interested in now, that art, art in cultural forms of expression and self-expression can communicate an art of living which contextualises our behaviour within the much broader frame of, of natural systems, living systems. And and when Mike talks about developing new metaphors, I'm absolutely in agreement with that, and I think that that has to happen at every level of cultural engagement. We desperately need to develop and articulate and communicate and find both physical and symbolic structures for these new metaphors. And circularity is a fantastic one because it's so closely tied in with, with living systems and seasons and cycles that are already in existence. I'm also interested in all of the metaphors that chaos and complexity theory provide for us, the metaphors around for living beyond equilibrium, movement between order and disorder, everything that, that makes, renders complex the nature of our engagement with the world and proves that we're contingent in everything we do, places us in an environment so that our actions aren't just single actions but they're actions towards or actions in alliance with. And so I think that, that we have framed the climate narrative as a negative one of having to stop doing something. And I'm much more interested in the possibilities of action in different contexts, in more complex contexts, where single actions can generate unknowable and unpredictable outcomes, but they will generate outcomes. So action is worth taking. When we project into the future and when uh, cultural responses help us project into the future, isn't there a tendency for us to sort of imagine the future as, as much like the present, but, you know, with hoverboards, i.e., subtly different, rather than the idea that there might be some kind of tipping point, some kind of dramatic change, which could be where we suddenly are facing a very different world. And that is one of the many scenarios that we can get from climate change. Tipping points feel very frequently like a rhetorical stepping up of having lost the previous argument. It feels like, from someone who's not invested on either side of the argument, you say, there will be warming. Other people say, it won't be so bad. You say, aha, but there might be a tipping point. So whether or not there is a tipping point, you do run into this problem that that's very much rhetorically how it feels. Yeah, there's plenty of imaginative science that tries to look into the future and think what might be. They may happen or they may not. Actually, what we do know, I would argue, much more convincingly, is that changes in technology, changes in social organisation, changes in political orientation are inevitably going to bring about very dramatic and sometimes abrupt changes in the future. 
unless you somehow think the present social, technological and political state that we are in is solidified and will not change for the next 100 years. And this, again, is where some of, some of the climate science, I think, gets it badly wrong. It seems to think that climate will unfold on a, on a basically static planet and humanity. And so if we're thinking about these non-linear or abrupt or dramatic changes, we should be thinking imaginatively about what may happen through social organisation, technology and politics. The collapse of the Soviet Union, the introduction of the internet, the ability that we now have to start manipulating our own genetic structures. I mean, those are dramatic, non-linear interventions in the world, just as important, I would suggest, as a hypothetical putative tipping point that may happen to the Amazon rainforest in 50 years' time. Don't they have a great impact on us because, they, because things like genetic engineering threaten uh, our notion of the integrity of our bodies? I mean, this is where I think that climate becomes real, is when, and it's the only kind of tipping point that really registers with me, is when, when there's a threat from disaster, disease or death to the human body, to the inviolable human body. And that's when we start to acknowledge that we are endangered. And until disease comes to us... Uh, when I was at a Tipping Point conference in New York last year, and one of the artists there said, there's no point having poster campaigns with polar bears sliding off melting icebergs. You've got to have poster campaigns in America of little blonde-haired, blue-eyed children drowning in Michigan. And until you reframe the narrative and say it's your body and your life that's endangered... Nobody's going to care less about what's happening because we're discounting distance and the future all the time. How is that drowning Michigan child campaign going, though? I'm not, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I can well <laughs> can, can artistic responses, though, help truly help us prepare for some of these futures, open our mind to some of these possibilities of mitigation, adaptation, etc.? Well, I think they can, and I think that they must. And I think that that's, for me, the reason to be engaged as an artist, whatever that means, to be creatively engaged in the world, is to engender and to support psychological potential for change and for evolution, for adaptation. And I think until, until knowledge is embodied, until it's actually embodied, it's not received, it's not known. You can, you can change people's behaviour through legislation. We've done it with seatbelts and drink driving and all sorts of things. But again, that's about threatening the body. It's easy for us to understand why we're being harangued into doing these things. But it's much harder to make a change in lives, in our lives, for futures that we can't predict and we can't control. But it's easier to do that if psychologically and emotionally we feel that there's reason to do it. And I think that that's where art and culture can communicate in ways that science hasn't been allowed to in the past because of the scientific methodology and the particular ethical considerations around how scientists communicate their findings. Artists can do it on a human scale, directly. They have more liberties. They, they have more liberties. They can make quantum leaps in their thinking. They don't have to quantum base it on... Quantum leaps are very small and uncertain. It, and, uh, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but they shift the way that we understand <laughs> the world, don't they? And, and where science has to do it through an accumulation of empirical evidence. And so I think art has a freedom of movement and manoeuvre that science can't have and shouldn't have if it's to remain something that can be trusted in the public sphere. It's just quantum leaps are an interesting example of scientific language in the mainstream. It means True the complete enough. opposite of what it does in science. <laughs> Karen, do we need to have 
mental preparedness before we can have physical preparedness? Does do these artistic responses make us more willing to do new things, or are they, as we've heard in the past, just as at risk of paralysing us into doing nothing? Um, I think what we need is mental openness, um, and that's sort of the opposite of mental preparedness, ironically. And can artistic um, responses then help us with mental openness, then? Well, I think, I mean, all of the things that, that Mike and Ruth have been talking about are absolutely key. I mean, I, I'm getting... Um, I think uh, what we need is a sense that we don't... That, that, that the, the courage to say we don't know, and this includes poor old scientists. I mean, I, they get such a rough time. Why should one branch of humanity be expected to know all the answers? It's nonsense. We have to sort of have a spirit of inquiry that we share. Absolutely, we need each other. I mean, I think one of the, the really key things here is to open up to one another, discipline to discipline, branch of society to branch of society, nation to nation, and sort of say, we don't know, but we need each other. You know, so this is a sort of... It's a radical reforming of interdependence, mutual dependence. It's very liberating to admit you don't know stuff. Not enough people do it. I mean, I'm very interested in metaphor as a, as a way of giving a sort of space to imagine new realities that don't necessarily have to be signed off by Thursday and costed by the next week, you know. Roger, from your experience of dealing with the, the politicians and the leaders of industry and the people who actually may have a disproportionate influence on this, are cultural responses something that can actually change their minds, perhaps more than a whole slew of journalism and articles and data? Of course, everybody is culturally determined, partly. But you have to remember now that all these companies have set their own culture in which climate change, low-carbon economy, sustainability for some of them has become a quite serious objective. And uh, I think it would be very difficult for them to begin unpicking that culture so that's what I was talking about before, when there, there are these various overlapping processes in society. Uh, that's why I think it would be this, uh, well, I'm not convinced about the way the climate change story will go, certainly far too early to write it off, because there are so many powerful movers in society still pressing ahead with it. And also, just to also put it in context, this is an international conversation, and this great sort of ferment of climate scepticism is it a UK phenomenon, also partly in the US, Australia, particularly in, in New Zealand? But for much of the rest of the world, their original understanding of the science, as we had generally a couple of years ago, has not changed. And so I think we should keep that perspective. Ruth, we seem to be getting an idea that, that all scales of intervention, all different di directions, all different people have a part to play, but are some areas more effective than other in terms of cultural responses? Are you going to change more minds through a mainstream blockbuster movie or through a no, art, art house? I mean, I was thinking about this last night and thinking it's very hard, and but it's part of the reason for these talks, I think, to, to begin to map out the sorts of cultural responses to climate change that may or may not be producing an effective response. But there are three areas that I find very interesting, and this is a completely subjective response to it. One of them is there's, there's a cultural response to climate change which is largely elegiac, and there's some absolutely beautiful and wonderful work coming out of that. The choreographer Siobhan Davies has made some fantastic pieces about imagining our future beyond the time when we've been able to continue to evolve and adapt because we've evolved to a standstill technologically, as it were, and materially. Then, and uh, there's a fantastic campaign in New York, going back to polar bears, by uh, Joshua Allen Harris, who's a street artist, who's made a series of plastic bag polar bears, which he puts over the gratings above the, the underground stations. And when the trains go past, the air 
fills up the bag and the polar bear stands and comes to life and as the train disappears it, it falls in the most extraordinarily beautiful choreographed way and you, you, you watch the extinction of the animal on these New York subway gratings and it's a very, very powerful, poetic, wordless way of envisaging the value of what we're losing. Then there's the kind of work that is, I think, immersive, which I find fascinating. There's so many artists working in this field. We're working with a lot of them in Scotland next year who, who have got inside natural processes. They've, they've stopped standing back there, out of the galleries, or often, no, not always. They've communicated with scientists, sometimes collaborated very closely with them. They're making new forms and articulating new experiences of our world, our lives within the world. That art, I think, is very powerful because it shifts you psychologically and emotionally towards a contextualised understanding of what it is to be human. And then thirdly, and the thing that I think perhaps where there's the most hope of all, is the sort of what I would call the Leonardo art, which is artists who have entirely transdisciplinary in their approach. And they've said, no point hanging around thinking of alternative futures, we've got to build them. The example that I use as a metaphor that I want to carry with me everywhere, but it's also real, is a company called Empower Playgrounds, which works in Ghana. They harness the kinetic energy of children to generate electricity from playground equipment to power their classrooms with computers and lights. And again, it comes back to this idea of the art of living. And I, I like the idea of artists who willingly place themselves in the way of life in order to design, to use the design competencies of art to engage with real problems and real possibilities. Nearly out of time, but I think since we are talking about looking into the future, it would be remiss of me not to ask one future-gazing question of each of you. So if we can look, say, 10, or if you prefer, 100 years into the future, are you more optimistic or pessimistic in terms of our ability as a species to adapt and mitigate and postpone the effects of climate change? And are you optimistic or pessimistic about the part that culture and cultural responses will play? And I'll start with Carolyn. Well, I think all of us in this room have to be optimists of a certain kind, otherwise we just wouldn't show up. So I, I actually... I mean, I, I've found that the more I sort of move in the circles where people are dealing with these kinds of issues, uh, the more impressed I am actually by how much creativity and, and you know, forward thinking and inventiveness and adaptability. And, and I would use the word love, actually, oddly, <laughs> because, you know, people really do, do want to do the right thing and do want to care. So I, I, I have a lot of hope for humanity. I also ha have a sort of healthy kind of respect for, you know, the degree to which people can sort of ignore problems until they're... I mean, you know, the, the famous thing of the, the cancer patient smoking in bed sort of thing. So I, I'm not optimistic for rapid ahead-of-the-wave change, I'm afraid. I think it is going to be the case that people will only respond, as Ruth says, when, you know, that they can actually sort of sense it being their problem and their body that's at risk. Roger? Well, I'm, I'm not optimistic, and over the years I have noted that when I have asked environmentalists, are you optimistic, they always reply, I have to be optimistic. <laughs> In other words, for themselves, they have to be optimistic, otherwise they couldn't continue. But I'm a journalist, and I don't feel the need to be optimistic. You know, we just heard about life after the crash. I'm not convinced that there will be a crash, and that's part of the problem. We can't know whether there will be a crash or not. I'm very pessimistic about society, global society's ability to deal with a challenge uh, with this amount of uncertainty and complexity. 
There's also a scenario in which the world gets uh, one and a half and, and two degree warming, and uh, actually a lot of places are greatly improved by that because the warming will come in the uh, in the northern latitudes mainly. But I don't want to take an either an optimistic or pessimistic position. I don't feel the need to, and actually I'm not even sure whether it's very helpful to throw your own human emotion into something of this nature. Maybe, maybe it is if you need to continue in a particular job, but. I don't feel it useful personally. That's good. 20 years at the BBC, you've removed all emotion. That's very <laughs> impressive. Uh, <laughs> Professor Mike Hume. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm, I am optimistic. I mean, I think I'm religiously disp- dis- disposed to be optimistic a- about the future on a couple of conditions. One is that we overcome what actually quite polemically C.P. Snow described as the two cultures in which... Actually, he elevated science and engineering technology way above what we might call our cultural pursuits and our imaginative lives. We've got to get away from that type of of hierarchy. If we can allow our creative and imaginative and cultural potentials to flourish at the same time as our scientific and innovative technological creativity to flourish, then I think I'm optimistic. And another reason to think of optimism is simply the sheer size of humanity on the planet. We have far more people alive today who are increasingly educated, exposed to a huge diversity of ideas and, and techniques and methods. And that sheer size of humanity, if you think of it as a creative potential, we are far more creative potentially creative than we have ever been on this planet before. And that suggests to me that we can find a whole variety and diversity of new ways of living on a planet. Climate change, as I described, is the the condition that we have to adjust to. It is simply the way the future is. Uh, It's not something to be stopped, to be controlled, and therefore I am optimistic. And the other thing, too, about these these more scary scenarios about the future is that the future never gets any closer the future is always in the future. Mm. And this notion of shifting baselines, I think, is quite helpful, that we do incrementally, sometimes more rapidly, we change our expectations of normality. The future is always out there to draw us forward, and I therefore have an instinctive hope and optimism about humanity's future on the planet. Right, we need to see ourselves as a, future, as a force of nature and be aware of what comes with that. Yeah. Ruth? I think we will continue to face enormous stresses in population, poverty, energy use, environmental degradation and climate. And those things aren't going to go away and they're going to remain interlinked and continually mutually reinforcing one another. I don't have a lot of faith in in political process as it's currently established, again, on party political lines. and, And I don't have a lot of faith in the corporation to stifle the desire for profit and think about resilience rather than growth. But I think that people are thinking about those things, ordinary human beings who aren't, who haven't sacrificed themselves for the sake of a, a corporate profit motive. I think we are thinking about resilience in new ways that, that stand and offer very, very promising opportunities to develop more diverse uh, and sustainable societies. Finally, Oliver Morton. I think, I, I mean, I'm not... Um, I'm not sure about uh, um, putting one's emotions into it. I'm not, I think, in my private life, emotionally a particularly optimistic person. I am pretty optimistic about long-term outcomes under climate, but I'm very pessimistic about the path at which they're reached. I think there are very bad ways to get there and and, and better ways to get there. There's a a useful concept, I think, um, introduced by the Canadian thinker Tad Homer Dixon, the ingenuity gap, 
that there are solutions, but that there is an ingenuity gap. And I'm very worried about the degree to which we're going to be able to minimise suffering specifically in the, in the developing world as we overcome that ingenuity gap. But I'm also struck that in, in some of our closing remarks, we slightly moved back into the dichotomy we sort of like put aside at the beginning of seeing culture and climate change as different. I think that one of the things I've taken from the discussion is very much that climate change is a cultural activity, a cultural focus, a cult, an, an imaginary, as sociologists say. And th- that does worry me slightly. I would rather see our, our imaginary expand beyond just climate, beyond the idea that the best thing we can think about 2100 is how red or otherwise bits of the map are, and move more into the realm of a more generalised concern with human development. Oliver, thank you. And we will have to leave the future there as predictably our time in the present has passed. Huge thank you to our panel of prophets, forecasters and doom mongers, Roger Harabin, Ruth Little, Carolyn Steele, Professor Mike Hume and Oliver Morton. <laughs> and also to our hugely spontaneous audience here at the National Theatre Studio in London and to yourselves wherever you may be listening. Uh, I also have to thank the Open University and the Ashton Trust for organising this as one of four mediating change discussions on the broader theme of cultural responses to climate change. This is the last of the quartet chronologically and thematically, but each stands alone, so should you wish to listen, the other three are on the history of such responses, how to categorise and anatomise them, and the role of popular culture in changing minds and behaviour. They should be lurking close to wherever you found this. As the great physicist Niels Bohr said, prediction is difficult, especially about the future. So be sure to come back and listen to this podcast again in 2020 or 2050 and see how we all did.